We come this morning to uh, pick up in our sermon series in Paul's great letter to the Romans. I'd invite you to turn this morning to Romans chapter 5 if you have a copy of scripture. Romans chapter 5, we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. And I recognize that in your bulletin it says we're looking at Romans 5, 1 through 11. We are almost certainly only going to make it through verse 5 this morning. Paul is in that great section of Romans that really runs from chapter 1, verse 18 all the way through the end of chapter 5, and that really sets out for us man's great problem, his unrighteousness and his need for an alien righteousness outside of him. And then from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5, the the riches and the intricacies of the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and you get the sense as Paul goes on into this chapter that, that he's wanting you to understand there is always so much more to grasp, so many other sides and contours to this glorious central doctrine of the gospel. And this morning we're looking at Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 5, and just by way of contextual introduction, In chapter 4, you'll remember Paul has gone back to Abraham, and he has proved that the gospel he preaches is not something new. It's not something that Paul and the other apostles invented in the New Covenant. This is a gospel that is rooted all the way back in the earliest epoch of redemptive history. And Abraham becomes the supreme example of a believer, a justified believer. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him, it was imputed or counted to him for righteousness. And in that one simple verse, Paul finds all the truth of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. And so as he moves now from explaining the example of Abraham as a justified believer by faith alone, Paul now says this in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, you all know, if you have been under my ministry for any length of time, that I love almost more than most figures in church history, John Bunyan. John Bunyan, as you know, was that great congregational Puritan of the um, 17th century, 16th century, and Bunyan, you will know, uh, endured more suffering and hardship than, than many of the celebrated ministers throughout Reformation history. Bunyan was arrested on several occasions. He was ultimately thrown in that Bedford prison for 12 years 
for preaching the gospel of John chapter 9, when he defied the edict of the king uh, not to preach unlicensed or outside of the state-sponsored settings, and he would preach in a barn. Bunyan, as you know, was called a tinker because he fixed kitchen, kitchenware and pots. He was a very humble and a very gracious man, and yet such a great minister that the, the great the greatest of the Puritan theologians, John Owen, the prince of the Puritan theologians, said that he would give up all of his learning if he could preach one sermon like the Tinker. So admired was Bunyan, so lasting are his works. We read John Bunyan today more than just about any man from that period of church history, and yet Bunyan was a man that was plagued with issues of assurance of salvation. If you have ever read his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan recounts for us in vivid detail the many ups and downs of his soul. One day, Bunyan will say as a believer, I was sure that God was going to cast me into hell. And the next day, he would say, I was assured of the comfort and the assurance of the gospel for me. And, and what you find as you read Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners is that this is a man who is fighting for assurance of salvation. That is not an experience uncommon to true believers, by the way. I want to say something this morning. There are some lovers of the Puritans who want to convince you that you're not really a Christian unless you struggle with assurance. Let me dispel that doubt from your mind. Um, doubting your salvation is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And yet there are other people who will try to convince you that if you ever have these ongoing questions and doubts, maybe you're not a Christian. Well, I am here this morning to tell you that the better part, both John Bunyan and John Owen, and the better part of the great ministers of the gospel have wrestled, Martin Luther have wrestled deeply with questions of assurance, and they have found them resolved in, in passages like Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. I think I've told you this. My favorite, my favorite story of Bunyan in Grace Abounding, he is out one day, and he's walking through the country. And, and Bunyan says, he says, I was musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart and consider, considering the enmity that was in me toward God. And, and he says, that scripture came to my mind out of Colossians 1. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. And Bunyan says, I was made to see again and again that day that God and my sinful soul were at peace through that blood and could embrace and kiss each other through that blood. Bunyan says, that was a good day for me. I shall hope I shall never forget it. On the next day, he forgot it, if you read on. But what I love about that is Bunyan roots for us where we are to go when we are wondering, am I really at peace with God? Not do I feel at peace with God, but am I at peace with God? Now, Paul is interested in helping believers ground the assurance of their salvation at this point, in this way, in the fact that if you are justified once and for all, if you have been declared righteous in Christ, if he has imputed his righteousness to you, and he has justified you, that you are definitively 
in a state of peace with God. You may not feel it. Your soul may not yet have derived the benefit and comfort of that feeling, but it is as true and as definitive as the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I want us to consider this morning as we look at this, and really what Paul sets out in these five verses is what we might call the fruit of justification. What, what benefit does justification have for me? What bearing does it have on my life? And I want us to consider three things first. Most significantly, I want us to consider peace with God as the fruit of justification in Christ. Secondly, I want us to consider joy in God. I'm sorry, just two this morning. Peace with God and joy in God. Peace with God is the fruit of justification. Joy with God as the fruit of our justification in Christ. Well, notice what Paul does there in verse 1 is that great therefore. He is taking everything he has said in chapter 321 to the end of chapter 4, and he has cumulatively gathered it together, and he is now saying, what is the end result of all these things for you if you are a justified man, woman, boy, and girl in Christ? And Paul says this. He says, therefore, having been Justified. Now, before we say anything about the peace and that fruit, I want to just note the importance of this verse this morning in the Reformation. You will probably know that the Reformers battled vehemently Roman Catholic theologians and the Roman Catholic Church over this issue. Rome had said that justification is not a once-for-all act, that it was a process, and that though it is begun with the forgiveness of some of your sins, yet by the Spirit working in you and enabling you to do good works, one day you may be justified. With this cooperation with God, God doing his part and then you doing your part, and the reformers looked at at scripture like this, very interestingly, in the book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Church of Rome. Wow, that's overlooked in church history. And notice the language that Paul uses in in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified. Don't miss that. Where in the Bible, if someone says to you, where do you prove that God accepts a sinner as righteous once and for all, that you will never be more or less justified if you are justified in one act, I would take them to Romans 5.1. Having been justified. Having been justified, having been accepted, having been brought into God's favor, having been reconciled to God, it's already done. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says, the newest believer is no less justified and the oldest believer is no more justified than he or she is right now the moment he or she has believed in Jesus. That's glorious. There's no... There's no quantitative difference. You can never be more justified than another justified believer. In fact, I would go further to say the saints in heaven, as our hymn says, are more happy but not more secure. Those who are in glory right now in the presence of God are not any more justified than you are if you are united to Christ by faith alone. Uh, That is marvelous. And that needs to wash over us. Because if we look for the assurance of being at peace with God in my efforts, 
my stridency, my stringent labors, my discipline, my seriousness about Christianity, my reading the Bible, my going to church, my doing all these important means, if I look for my insurance there, I will never have that assurance, ever. Always be looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and never doing enough. And Paul comes with this great declaration, therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Um, Don't miss this. It is a marvelous, marvelous thing that the Lord can bring us to a place where we recognize that because of what Christ has done, God is forever at peace with us who believe in him. Now, I'll say this this morning. When we sin, we can displease our Father in heaven, but we can't lose the reconciliation we have with him. When we sin, he can bring chastening into our life, but the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us even that's a mark of God's love for you. You never lose reconciliation. You're never less reconciled. You see, what Paul is understanding about justification is that what justification does is God forgives all of your sins. God counts you as righteous. But God has dealt with the problem of our enmity toward him by nature. And and God has looked and he has seen that our great need as sinners is to be reconciled to him. But if I can say this reverently this morning... The Lord has also recognized that his great need is to be able to deal with those obstacles to reconciling us to himself. And here's the other marvelous thing. We do nothing to reconcile ourselves to God. He takes the initiative. He knows the problem. He knows that his, just, his justice has to be satisfied. He knows that his wrath has to be propitiated. He knows that we are his enemies. In fact, look, look down in chapter 5. Notice verse 6. When we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice verse 10. If we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And go back to chapter 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Notice the pattern. God only reconciles enemies, sinners, weak, helpless, ungodly people. That's it. He only justifies ungodly people. Because God understands that the greatest need we have is that we who by nature are at enmity with him need to be reconciled to him. And so he takes the steps to do that. Now, I've already noted there is a reality of this reconciliation. Um, Paul is speaking about our relationship to God. He's not talking about our feeling. The feeling will come, and we will talk about that in a minute, but the peace is a reality in our relationship with God. And, and, and that means when I go to confess my sin to God through Christ, I, I don't need to go saying, Lord, would you please maybe do this for me? If Maybe would you forgive me? Um, because there is, and this, you have to listen very closely this morning, There is something almost dishonoring to God when we don't pray, even confessing sin, in accord with what he has accomplished for us. Um, Charles Spurgeon, 
talks about a parent who says to his child, look, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you this. And the child comes and he's like, oh, you know, dad, mom, would you please maybe consider doing that for me? And the parent says, I I just told you I'm going to. And the the child says, well, I, I hope maybe you will. And the parents can say, I just told you I'm going to do that for you. God has told it. He's already done the reconciliation. We are reconciled through the death of Christ. God, as Bunyan said, has made peace through the blood of the cross. It's already done. And for us to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I hope that maybe you would really do this, is us essentially saying, I really don't believe that. The nature of faith in Christ demands that we take God on the basis of what he says here and we pray and live in according to it. And let me say this this morning. I've been a pastor for almost 15 years. This is one of the hardest things for Christians to get. We love to try to work for anything we can. We do. And that's why Paul is pressing this in so clearly. Listen to this, John Murray, the great... um, 20th century theologian said, peace with God denotes our relationship to him. It is not the composure and tranquility of our minds and hearts. It is the status of peace flowing from the reconciliation. And it reflects primarily upon God's alienation from us and our instatement in his favor. You see, because of what God did in Christ, because of what he did at the cross, Because of what Jesus did in his sinless life, because of the resurrection, God has already removed the alienation and has already reconciled us to himself. Now, that will necessarily lead to enjoyment of the peace that we have already in our justification. I want you to notice verse 2. Look at this. Paul now says, through him, that is through Christ... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, what I think Paul is doing in verse 2 is he's telling us, how can I enjoy this enormous benefit of God having already reconciled me? How can I enjoy the peace that you're telling me I already have in my status with God? And Paul says, look, it's all in Christ. And because we have such a mediator between God and man, whoever lives to intercede for us. We enjoy that peace by reflecting on who he is and going to God through him. You know, I often note in my prayers here on Sunday mornings, and I did it this morning, that truth of 1 John 2, 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the whole world. Listen, that is a great comfort to believers. That's what Paul's saying. We have access by faith into this grace through Christ in which we stand. So that when I'm wondering whether God's accepted me, I go to God in Christ acknowledging what he's done and gaining from him then that tranquility of mind and that peace of conscience like Bunyan gained. You see... It's a two-step process of peace. God establishes that peace in his relationship with us, and then in the enjoyment of it, we go to him continually through Christ for new waves of that grace and that peace. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon says this. Oh, I love this. 
I sent this out to my company of pastors this morning in a text, and nobody responded, and I thought, clearly they missed this. So listen, y'all. Stand to this. Christ has finished your salvation for you. He has done everything that omnipotent justice can ask. He has endured all the penalty. He has drained the cup of wrath. He has obeyed the law completely. He has given to divine equity all that it can demand, and therefore believing in his name, standing in his righteousness, accepted in his suretyship, you must have peace with God. Is that not awesome? You must have peace with God. If you are recognizing all that Jesus is and all that he's done, and you're acknowledging that we have been justified, as you go to God through him, as, as you, you all three members, notice verse 2, all three members of the Godhead in a sense at work in, in, in this because uh, at the end of verse 5, the Holy Spirit has poured God's love out in us. The Son is the mediator. The Father is the object in that sense of uh, the, the experience of our redemption. And, and as we go to him, noting these things about Christ, we, we cannot help but have peace with God. Spurgeon says this is the basis of the Christian's peace. Again, I want to say this morning, you know, you are called to pursue holiness, but if you think your peace with God is going to be grounded on your holiness, you will never attain to assurance of salvation, ever, ever. Because the Christian life is so up and down. Let me read to you the Hatterberg Catechism. I love this. Question 60. How are you righteous before God? The writers of the Hadelberg says this, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandment, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Y'all, that is the most marvelous truth that we need to come back to time and time again. Now, listen this morning. There are plenty of people who fancy themselves to be reformed who will tell you when they hear this, well, wait a minute, that's, that's going to lead to you doing whatever you want to do. No, it won't. In fact, if you take this out and you try to do it on your own, you're never going to have power to live a holy life. You will always live in condemnation and fear. You will have wrong thoughts of God and you will fail until you're in the grave. It's the way it works. Or if you say, I'm just going to throw it all off and live however I want, you're never going to have peace with God because you're just living for this world and its pleasures and yourself. But when you get this, this is true north, and you're grounded on this, the desire to live a godly life will necessarily follow, but it is not incorporated into this. Your reconciliation with God in no way whatsoever is dependent on anything you do we merely receive Christ by faith as God has set him out for us. The reconciliation happened. Our justification is a reality. Peace is objective. And now we have access to God through the same Christ for more of that peace in our experience. Now, Paul moves on, if that's not enough. And secondly, he now focuses on joy in God. And notice, notice what he says 
at the end of verse 2, he says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Um, If you have read Romans any time recently, or if you were here through this series, you may remember back in chapter 1 when when Paul is setting out in very vivid detail what man's great problem is and, and how we've exchanged, he says, the glory of God to worship creatures. That's man's great problem. We've exchanged God's glory to worship living things. Man has lost the glory. He's rejected the glory of God. He's forsaken the glory of God. He would rather give his worship to things that have no glory in themselves. And, and so part of the problem that is being remedied in justification is that problem. Paul is saying here, there is a way that God's glory is restored in the lives of believers. And, and notice how he puts it. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, what does he mean by that? He says that as we recognize the reconciliation we have in our justification in Christ, we realize that God has secured for us an everlasting inheritance. And we recognize that that is going to be ours. Even when we doubt whether it will be, it is guaranteed to believers in Christ. And that inheritance is God himself. You know, when we talk about eternity and and we speculate, what is it going to be like? What are we going to be doing? Eternity, I remember Judah saying once that, Dad, eternity is a really long time. Yeah, a really long time. Like, immeasurably long. Unending. What are we going to be doing? We are going to be delighting in the glory of God. For all eternity, whatever else. And it is going to be so much better than the best experiences you've had here. But whatever else, we are going to be delighting, delighting in God manifesting his glory everywhere. That's what Paul's saying. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, there's this little foretaste of the glory of God at the transfiguration. And Luke records this for us in chapter 9 when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with them. And, and you know, they fall asleep, so they miss the glory That's like us, we're Peter, James, and John asleep on the mountain while the glory is shining off the face of Jesus and the divine glory is breaking through his clothing. And Peter, James, and John miss it all. Moses and Elijah come back from glory. And then then they wake up and there's a glory cloud. There's a whole lot of glory on this mountain. And Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. Let's put you on the same plane as Moses and Elijah and, and the voice comes out of that glory cloud, this is my son, listen to him. Moses and Elijah disappear, they only see Christ. What's the point of that? Everyone with Jesus on that mountain is participating in and witnessing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's a little foretaste of the glory to come. Paul says to us this morning, because you're justified, We not only know that we are at peace with God, we rejoice in the hope that we will be with him in glory. You know, there is no glory to this world. The world can try its best to sort of just stir up excitement at sporting events and and make everything seem glorious. There is no glory. This is a fallen, 
dark, perishing world. And there are infinite and unending glories in God, in Christ, forever for believers. Um, I remember my best friend, I've told you about him, we had both been redeemed out of a lot of darkness. And, and he said to me as a very young Christian, he said, Nick, you know the joy that you thought you had, the feeling you got from, from drugs and from other you know, attempts for pleasure, he said, if you're with Christ in the presence of the glory of God, it is going to be unending, eternal ecstasy. Now, I guarantee you, you don't think about that enough because you haven't tasted enough of it. And we're drinking from broken wells that have no real ecstasy. And in Christ, there is never-ending joy. By the way, if I can say this this morning, Christians who get this should be the most joyful people. When we meet really serious-minded Christians that seem like they're afraid to smile, there's something deeply wrong. Because joy has to have a necessary overflow, an evidence that it's there, that we're rejoicing in the hope. Now listen to this, it gets even better. We not only have joy in the prospect of the hope of the glory of God, we can rejoice because of our justification in our suffering. Notice what Paul does. He says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, if we're honest, if I'm honest, there have been times I've read this and I'm like, I don't like that. Rejoice in suffering. Hey, I'm just being honest. <laughs> what, is, what does it mean we can have joy in suffering? Well, what I don't think Paul's saying is that a Christian who gets this is like, Lord, just give me more suffering. I think I told you, I, I remember this Christian sister praying once at a prayer meeting many years ago. Lord, I just pray that you would make me a martyr and give me suffering. I'm like, no. Like, no, no. I am here to tell you definitively, you do not need to ever pray that prayer. Listen to John Calvin. If you're not going to listen to me, listen to Calvin. Calvin says, essentially, well, let me break it down for you. He essentially says, look, it's not saying that believers don't need to dread suffering. It's not saying that believers need to want more suffering. It's saying as the hardships and the trials that seem to run counter to the reconciliation and peace you have with God. Because that doesn't look circumstantially. Remember Abraham? It doesn't look like it. But as those things come in, the true believer, if he or she is grounded in the peace and the joy we have because of our justification, we can keep rejoicing even when our worlds crumble down around us. This is what Calvin says. He says, as in their grief and sorrow, they are not without great consolation because they regard that whatever they bear is dispensed to them for good by the hand of a most indulgent father. They are justly said to glory Whenever salvation is promoted, there is not wanting a reason, another reason for glorying. What he's saying is, when you really get what God has done for you, you'll understand that all the suffering, all the trials, all the tribulations are only working to bring you to that place of realizing the hope of the glory of God. Notice how Paul does this here. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, here it is, It's all tending 
to bring you to the glory of God, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Do you see the the way he's come right back? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and the sufferings work together to produce these things to bring us back to hoping in the glory of God, knowing this is not it, this is not our home. Here we have no continuing city, but there is glory for believers. And Christ has guaranteed that you, if you are in him by faith, will be the recipient, the observant, and the one who is delighting in God's glory forever, no matter what you have to suffer here and now. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, Paul's going to go on. We're going to see this next week, Lord willing. He's going to tell us, how do I know that God loves me? And he's not going to talk about a feeling that you have. He's going to say God demonstrates his love in giving his son when we were ungodly. We look at the cross. And by the way, all of this is not just experienced by us. It was experienced by Christ, the sinless, eternal, divine son, who the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We rejoice in suffering because of hope. For the joy that was set before him, the hope of the glory of God bringing many sons to glory, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That means when we're suffering, when we are not rejoicing in suffering, when we are asking, does God really love me because my circumstances don't seem to tell me that he does, we look at the cross and we say, oh, he loved us. He loved us so much that he would give his infinite and eternally sinless and perfect beloved son for us to reconcile us, to make peace through the blood of that cross. So that if I look at my sufferings, I'm never going to inevitably rejoice in hope. But if I look at the cross, I can go through the sufferings and I can even rejoice knowing what God is doing to bring us to that glory. If I didn't tell you that this morning, I would be failing as a minister. Also, if I didn't tell you this morning that this is only true for you if you believe on the Lord Jesus. Even though all of it happened at the cross... You have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation and justification of your person. Um, Our great opposition, I'm going to say this this morning, your great opposition is not just that you need to try to be a little better person, it's that by nature we are at enmity with God. We hate God by nature. We hate his being, we hate his character, we hate his holiness, we hate God, that's the scripture's testimony. And that God has so loved us that he has provided a free, gracious way to be reconciled to him. What a, what a marvelous, marvelous God. I remember as a Christian, I'm going to leave you with this this morning. If you've never come to Christ, I want to say this, and I want you to hear me very clearly. I remember as a new Christian thinking, who in the world would not trust in Jesus Christ? 
It's so marvelous. It's so great. It's so free. It's so full of divine, undeserved love. Who would not trust in Christ? And yet the answer, sadly, is there are many that will hear this and will never trust in him. But if you are trusting in him, you are already at peace with God. And you, you continue to have access into this grace through Christ, that grace in which we stand and you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning as a believer that you will be resting in the reconciliation as John Bunyan learned to do ultimately and to be able to say, because of that blood, God and my soul are at peace and can kiss and embrace each other. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who has reconciled us to yourself through the death of your Son. Lord Jesus, we, are thank, we thank you for, for being such a full and complete Savior for us. We thank you for the justification you have given us. We thank you that you have accepted us as righteous in your sight. Despite our continued failures and sins, we thank you, our God, that that justification is complete, that that reconciliation is perfect, and that we have peace with you. Would you please grant each one here who is in a state of justification before you that experience of peace, that further assurance and comfort of the gospel, and would you give us joy Joy in the hope of being uh, in your presence, in your glory. And would you give us joy when you call us to suffer, knowing that it is working its way to bring us to greater hope and longing for that. Our God, would you do your work in us this morning through this truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.